everyone. So lovely to see you all. Goodness, I really appreciated that um, picture that Roger shared about the water rising and lifting us up. And um, my experience, I've been part of this church for a year and a half now, is um, it's amazing how quickly you can find yourself on the side <laughs> and, and in a sense be, uh, you know, uh, stranded on the beach. And then just to be in God's presence, something lifts us up. And it's not just about the peace and the joy that comes to us in the moment. It's about God putting us back on mission because the, 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 the boat is built for the open sea. And um, I really love being with you guys on Sunday mornings. It feels like a safe harbor in God's presence and in God's word. And I got to know many of you, and I, I understand that what God is doing with us on a Sunday is setting us up for you know, life in the open sea during the week. And uh, yeah, so what a joy. Um, I just want to give some great feedback. Um, that may or may not interest you. Um, I wrote a book uh, released in December called How God Sees Women, The End of Patriarchy. Quite a challenging book to, <laughs> thank you, <laughs> quite a challenging book to um, many sectors of the church that are fairly convinced that women can't co-lead a church with men and have very strong subordinationist ideas about women. You know, here's the man, here's the woman. And my book says, no, that's not actually the clear teaching of the Bible. The, the clearer teaching of the Bible is man and woman side by side, teaming together. So I wrote this book and I, I, I fetched some criticism and it's been a, a growing experience for me. <laughs> but I, there's been such encouragement too. And this week, Julie and I went up to the Assemblies of God, 67 churches in South Africa. They're some of the most vibrant churches in their city. Some of them are thousands of, of people strong. And um, what's happened in this movement, interestingly, is a few decades ago, the understanding was women were here, men were here. In fact, just three decades ago, women were still wearing hats. I know many women who come from Assemblies of God says it was just terrible to be a woman. <laughs> and, uh, but things have been changing. And then a few churches began to believe that actually they should ordain their women. But the, the movement leaders were not sure about this and kind of kept it on the lowdown. Anyway, after my book came out, uh, the, the senior leadership team somehow came across my book and, um, and as a team said, it's time. And uh, sent two copies to every church leadership couple across these congregations. They want the husband and the wife leading it, reading it, the book simultaneously. They wanted to speed up the process. And, uh, and this week, Julie and I went as they announced the change in the whole movement and then they ordained some woman in front of us. Wow. It was just such an experience. And you can just feel the pleasure of God on it. And you can just feel the church is going to be stronger for it. So if you've been part of the journey a little bit, we did a series earlier this year on how God sees women. You might feel some of the excitement of what I'm saying. Next week, by the way, we're starting a new series called The Generosity Gospel. I don't know what you know about Christianity in Africa. It's going nuts. It's very exciting. Uh, you know, the foster spread of the gospel in history is China and Africa. It, never before have so many people becoming Christians as now. And uh, unfortunately, where there's such rapid growth, there's also theological shallowness. And the prosperity gospel is what people call it. It's coming to Africa where you basically treat God as a kind of a bless me magician. 
And you come to him because he's going to bless us. He's going to prosper us. And you come to God because he's going to make you wealthy and healthy and strong and prosperous. And although there's an element of truth in it, you can see how self-focused this is. So we are doing a series called The Generosity Gospel, which is actually God's plan isn't just to target you with blessing. It's to target others for blessing through you. And it's about God flowing not only to us, but through us living our lives on mission with this. And, and Jesus says, later in Matthew, freely you've received, freely give. That's the big idea. So we want to just camp on that for, for the year. And then we're going to have a Christmas service this year, by the way. And we thought we will um, culminate our series with that idea that Jesus is God's gift to the world. Okay, so that's what starts next week. T today I wrap up the Sermon on the Mount series, the Sermon on the Mount series. And one of the reasons we chose the Sermon on the Mount series, it's Matthew chapter 5 to 7, is it so beautifully is at the heart of our mission as Signal Church. Signal Church, is, we're stepping into the story of God and the ways of Jesus for the sake of Cape Town. We're stepping into the story of God and the ways of Jesus for the, the, the sake of Cape Town. You see, we step into the story of God stretched out from beginning to the end of the Bible and of history. The story crescendos in Jesus. And comes to rescue people and renew creation. It's a story which Jesus calls the kingdom of God. The liberating inbreaking of God's goodness and reign into a dark and deformed world. So we seek first his kingdom as a church. We're being transformed by it and we're becoming envoys of it, agents of it. And we're not only we're stepping into the story of God, we're stepping into the ways of Jesus. You see, Jesus modeled and taught us a much better way to be a human than anything society or history has churned up. And walking in the ways of Jesus, by the way, encompasses, uh, encompasses you know, church life, but it's not limited to church meetings. It's about the kind of people we are throughout the week. And that's why as a church, we're not just interested in raising up leaders in the church, but about commissioning change agents and culture shapers in society. And uh, what we're trying to do is we're trying to represent Jesus to the city that God has placed us in. So, the, the Sermon on the Mount beautifully does that. It's the, it's, this, it's the message that Jesus brings upon announcing the presence of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 4. And he shows us his way, how to live life like, like he wants us to live it, his wisdom. So we're right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Let me read it. Matthew 7, verse 24. Therefore, Jesus says, anyone who hears these words of mine, these words of mine are a reference to the Sermon on the Mount. And puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. So I got four points for you. Number one, build your life on what's eternal. Build your life on what's eternal. Uh, you know, I suppose when you're a kid or a teenager, you're not really thinking about building your life. But by the time you're in your 20s, you start thinking, hey, I'm going to build something with my life. Actually, come to think of it, my children already think like that. It's quite amazing to see these guys with a sense of building towards something with their lives. And every one of us, consciously or unconsciously, builds our lives upon some convictions about the world, some convictions about what really matters. 
You see, our ideas about reality really impact the way we live and the, the way we build our lives. And, and Jesus is contrasting uh, temporary values with eternal values. Temporary values with eternal values. So temporary values are like, I'm going to build my life uh, for money. That's what I want to build my life toward. I'm just going to accumulate more and more wealth. Or I'm going to build my life on, a, on my career success. Or I'm going to build my life on uh, my, my children, my family. Or I'm going to build my life on the home that I live in, the holidays I have. I'm going to build my life towards great achievements. I'm going to build my life towards my reputation. And, and these are not bad things. And I doubt any of us don't have some of these things as a basic motivation in our lives. The question is, are you building your life upon that as though that's the foundation of reality? You see, there's the rock of eternal values. God, God's word, God's spirit, Jesus, the finished work of the cross, the kingdom of God, the church of Jesus. These are eternal things, the will of God, the message of God. This is something substantial to build your life upon. These are eternal things that, that outlast the trends of every generation, and you know what's cool right now. And here's the thing, you got one person look, building their lives completely on temporal values, how they look, what they have, what they achieve. You got another person building their lives on kingdom values. They seek God's kingdom first. They immerse themselves in his word and his presence and seek God's will for their lives. Two people. And, and, and if you look at them just you know, for a while, during good times, no war, nice, you know, market booms, good health. They look more or less the same. You can hardly tell the difference between the two. But when the storms come, you can tell the difference. You can tell the difference. I'd say that building your life on sand, in some ways, actually your life's a little bit easier. Because all of your focus is on what's above the ground. You're just worried about, you know, that new, uh, that new paint lick. You're worried about the new fittings, the new garage, the car that goes inside of it. You're focused on what can be seen because temporal values are all visible. That's what makes them so enticing. Kingdom values are invisible. They're below the ground. It's tempting. You know, you've got this much money, you want to build a house. You just put all the money into everything above the ground. The person who's packing into a, de a deeper foundation, spending a lot of time on things that are not seen. But it will eventually be revealed by the storm. See, when the rains of adversity hit the roof, when the winds of calamity smash against the walls, and the floods erode the foundations of the house, all is revealed. Tough times come, and you can tell the difference between people who live for eternity and those who live for time. Those who live for eternity maintain a hope, a joy, a peace, a poise, a power. Those whose house gets washed away, like we saw in the Natal floods, the KZN floods, there's, there's a tragedy. There's, there's, there's a hopelessness and a despair and a gloom. By the way, Jesus is not just speaking about difficult times. The storm he's referring to probably is referring to judgment day. It's possible you build your house upon the sand and you're one of the lucky ones. You go through a whole life and your marriage stays together and you never lose your fortunes and you keep good health till the last day. Lucky you. 
You sidestep the storms that get 99% of people on the planet. Well, no, you're just still about to hit the storm because <laughs> you're going to stand before your maker who's going to evaluate your life. Judgment day, evaluation day. And either you will receive his approval if you've built your life on, sa- on rock or you will receive his disapproval if you build his, your life on sand. By the way, is Jesus speaking this word to Christians or to non-Christians? Yeah. Who is he talking to here? Because we assume, oh, well, obviously the people building the house on the rock, that's Christians. The people building the house, house on the land, that's sand. Well, actually, just look a little more carefully. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, it says, Jesus went up on the mountain with his disciples. So he's, he's preaching probably for several hours or several days. This, no doubt, is a summary of what he's preaching. And then right at the end, we, we, we're going to read that there are crowds on the mountain. So as he's preaching to his disciples, more and more gathering. In the beginning, he's speaking about you, and eventually the crowds are there. In other words, Jesus is speaking to both Christians and non-Christians, and it applies both ways. It's possible to be a Christian, who even though you, you know about the rock, you sing to the rock, somehow you don't build your life on the rock. I love this idea of a rock that withstands the storm. And while I was preparing, I was in the lounge, I looked up and I just looked at a painting of my son, Eli. Uh, It is a show-off moment, but my son, who's now 14, he painted that when he was 12. And uh, he's called it the, um, goodness, what's it called? The the Hope, Cape of Hope, or Hope After the Storm. Something like that. I, I got it. And, and the idea is that Cape Town is called the Cape of Storms, but it's also called the Cape of Hope. And there is something, and I'm, the reason I'm doing this is because if you live anywhere around here, and a lot of you do, you've got a constant reminder of a mountain that has withstood a million storms, lashed against it. Because we're part of the roaring 40s. These cold fronts come and they, they blister that mountain. And yet the, the mountain stands. The mountain stands. Okay, so, so that's my first point. Uh, you know, build your life on what's eternal. Number two, put Jesus' wisdom into practice. Put Jesus' wisdom into to practice. What do the man who's building on the sand and the man who's building on the rock in Jesus' story have in common? They have both heard the Sermon on the Mount. He says, the man who builds his house on the sand is like a man who hears my words. And he says, the man building the rock is like a man who hears my words. Both of them have heard the Sermon on the Mount. What's the difference between the guy on the sand, the guy on the rock? Well, the guy on the sand heard the sermon and didn't apply it. The guy building on the rock heard the sermon and applied it. It's so important to not just hear God's word, even be moved by God's word, it's important to apply God's words. I mean, isn't this possibly the most obvious challenge every church faces? That we sit together on a Sunday and we hear deluges of wisdom and commands and insights from the Bible that blow our hair back. And then we apply 7% of it to our lives. 
I mean, I think it's one of the reasons that we need to do more than just Sunday meetings. We need to do lunchtime conversations. So what did you think of that sermon? You know, does it work for you? Where, where are your sticking points? And it's another reason that we need to do community. We do nightclubs in this church, that's what we call them. And, and, and you close the gap between the sermons that you hear on a Sunday and the lives you actually live during the week. We actually need each other to go, hey, so, so we know about God's wisdom. How are you doing in terms of applying God's wisdom? Every one of us needs help. <laughs> we need encouragement. We need accountability. We need inspiration. We need sometimes confrontation. We need each other. I don't know a single person who's able to just hear the word and then do the word all on their own. It's a community. The transformation of your life is a community project. So we need to retain Jesus' words. It's, you know, it's pointless just carrying the Bible and then and hearing Jesus' words, but then forgetting it. Like, I, I've done a lot of thinking, I'm sure you have, about you know, authentic spirituality. And I wonder how much of our spirituality actually boils down to how much of the time we're thinking God's word in our brain, or is it just like a, a three-minute little WhatsApp on your phone in the morning and then out of mind for the rest of the day? You know, and a 30-minute sermon on a Sunday, and then out of the mind for the rest of your week. I wonder how much we're learning to retain God's word. Meditate on my word day and night, and then you'll be like a tree planted by a river. You'll, you'll bear fruit forever. I, I'm not telling you that I've got this one waxed. Uh, I, I've got two jobs. I'm a part-time leader of the team that leads this church, and I'm a part-time Christian author. So I'm one of the very lucky people in the world. I professionally meditate on God's word. I, um, so I feel very lucky about this. But, but I wonder what your plan is, if it's not sitting at coffee shops, reading commentaries and, and books. What, what, what's your plan to keep God's word percolating in your mind and heart and to be thinking, retaining God's word? I wonder, I wonder if you've taken to memorizing scripture. I wonder if you've taken to um, bringing to mind scripture you've memorized. Putting the challenge out to you. And then obviously to retain God's word, also to practice God's word. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount has been back-to-back provocation to live our lives differently, to to live a life that God will congratulate. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Because the word blessed are means congratulated are. You could live a life that God congratulates. Matthew 5, verse 13 to 16, pursue courageous influence as salt and light. Matthew 5, 17 to 20, love the scriptures. Matthew 5, 21 to 48, love radically, even your enemies. Matthew 6, 1 to 18, live before the audience of one. Matthew 6, 19 to 24, pursue that which is worthy of your life. Matthew 6, 25 to 35, overcome anxiety about the future and the preoccupation with not so important things. Matthew 7, verse 1 to 6, help others in the right way, not the wrong way. Matthew 7, verse 7 to 12, pray and love. And then last week, my wife preached on beware false teachings and prophets from Matthew 7, verse 13 to 29. Not enough just to hear the stuff. We need to do the stuff. We need to keep the ways of Jesus front and center in our mind. And I just want to say that, that is signal. We really must measure ourselves by whether lives are being changed in the right direction. It's at least possible that you could be part of a church for 10 years and you arrived with a Christ-like level of 
And after 10 years, you're down to 43%. Something went wrong in those 10 years. more verses, Matthew 7 verse 28, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. See that, so it started with just the disciples, now the crowds are there, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. And then it flips over into chapter 8 verse 1, and when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. So my third point for you is be amazed by Jesus' wisdom. Be amazed by Jesus' wisdom. I mean, why were the people amazed at Jesus' teaching? Well, one reason is, is the way he teaches in a way that connects with everyday life. He teaches in a way that connects with everyday life. Um, my son Eli, who's a, is that artist, is actually more of a mathematician than an artist. He lives with his head in the clouds. He comes home and he sits and he pulls out paper and he starts doing maths. Maths is the one field of study that is really in the clouds. It's purely up there. <laughs> you know, before God, uh, Eli and I were talking, before God even created the world, he was a mathematician. Because, you know, you had to have figured out everything before you could create it. So there is something to be said about this high abstract thought. But you don't get the feeling that Jesus, Jesus anyway promotes this kind of philosophical head in the clouds approach to life and spirituality. Listen to the objects that, that populate his message. He speaks about salt, light, pens, brothers, pennies, courts, prisons, fire, eyes, hands, knives, legal documents, thrones, footstools, hair, teeth, tunics, sun, rain, trumpets, religious buildings, doors, rooms, perfume, faces, moth, rust, thieves, treasure, masters, money, food, drink, clothing, birds, flowers, fields, specks, planks, dogs, pigs, fathers, gifts, Bread, stones, fish, snakes, gates, roads, sheep, wolves, grapes, figs, trees, houses, sand, rocks, storms, rains, winds, floods, and more. <laughs> I just went through the message and looked for every time he's speaking about something in life. I mean, he's interested in material reality. He's interested in creation. Why is he interested in creation? Well, Colossians chapter 1 says all things were made through him very interested in his creation, like an artist would be interested in, in her painting. He's interested in creation. To, to Christian spirituality is not head in the clouds. It's earthy. It connects with the moment. It connects with the place. It's local. And then, and then Jesus is also very interested in the human experience. Very interested in the human experience. I mean, he is so committed to the human experience that he took on humanity. I mean, that's right at the heart of Christian theology. The Son of God took on humanity. He didn't become a tree. He didn't become a dinosaur or a dog. He became a human. He is very interested in the human experience. And again, listen to the Sermon on the Mount because he is touching upon the human experience. He speaks about blessing, persecution, hunger for what's right, significance, Courage, obedience, the scriptures, teaching others, conflict resolution, reconciliation, adultery, sexual purity, lust, divorce, remarriage, marital faithfulness, the use of words, exaggeration and manipulation with words, integrity, revenge, forgiveness, doing good things for the wrong reasons, 
the danger of pursuing a respectable reputation, prayer, submission, temptation, the devil, reward, discipline, goals, priorities, money, materialism, anxiety, satisfaction, pleasure, security, fashion, image, condemnation, self-amendment, hypocrisy, tact, faith, the golden rule, decision-making. He's interested in the human experience. The Christian faith touches upon the human experience. You don't become less human when you come to Jesus. You become more human. Now, if you've been a Christian a long time, this doesn't even sound revolutionary. You knew this already. But if you were to compare Christian spirituality, and remember that it finds its roots in Jewish spirituality, Jewish spirituality and Christian spirituality were completely innovative in its earthiness and its attention to the human experience of all the pagan religions of the past. And if you were to study the Eastern religions, right at the heart of the Eastern religions is the idea that, um, that matter is not real, it's an illusion. The feelings you feel, these passions in your heart, they're all delusions. It's all an illusion. Um, so people who study religion speak about the difference between life-denying and life-affirming uh, ways of seeing the world. Christianity is a life-affirming way of seeing the world. I really love this. Every day, an invitation to an earthy faith. Every day, a real interest in how the kingdom of God touches upon my lived experience. To follow Jesus is not to be spared from the human experience. It's to have the human experience immersed in the reality of God. By the way, the human experience is sometimes so painful, so painful. Do you think that one perk of the gospel will be, okay, God will let you touch upon all experiences of the human experience, but don't worry, the most painful human experiences, he'll, he'll spare you from those, don't worry. Well, if you do believe that, um, you, you're in for a surprise. Because ask anybody who's lived enough decades, and some of the, the most painful experiences come upon you. And, and, and if you've been living with that belief that somehow you'll be spared from rejection, criticism, persecution, misunderstanding, agonizing betrayal or loss. I'm not prophesying over this, this over you people. I'm, I'm, please, yeah, I'm not like saying, guys, bad stuff's coming. I'm just... Live long enough, because there will be dark days of your soul. I was in the surf this week, chatting with a friend, and I, last time I saw him in the surf was, was <clears throat> just before COVID. I said, hey, man, I thought you were about to become a missionary in Madagascar. He says, he was going to, but his wife died of cancer two days before COVID. Sudden, came upon him. Wow. And then we got talking about exactly this. He said he just never imagined that a life so committed to God, even gearing up to become a missionary in Madagascar, could be hit by such pain. And, and then he, he described some of the grief process to me, the, the loss of himself, the loss of his confidence, the loss of his identity, the complete disorientation, the, 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 the wondering if anything you thought you knew about God in reality was real. And then he said, then he started speaking about the goodness of God, the rising tide. They can lift a, a boat. I'm saying this all in the most hopeful way. There is no experience that'll come to you that God can't redeem. 
that God can't heal, that God can't make part of his great story. And then I've got one last point. Be amazed by Jesus himself. Be amazed by Jesus himself. I mean, the sheer authority and boldness with which Jesus teaches is amazing. The first century was filled with rabbis who would be very scholarly, talking about Palestine, and then they would quote other rabbis. Rabbi rabbi so-and-so says, rabbi so-and-so says, and they would just out-quote each other. Actually, modern academia in some ways is like this. It doesn't matter what you think, just show me your reference. I'm I'm busy studying my master's in theology, and they remind you, we don't care what you think. Tell us who said what you're saying, because you obviously don't know a single thing. So just show us that somebody else trustworthy said it. That's, That's academia. Jesus stands up. And he doesn't say, Rabbi so-and-so says. He does it throughout the whole sermon. He says, you have heard it said, but I tell you. What the heck? (laughs) There is a weight, a boldness, a supernatural certainty upon the words of Jesus. You've heard that it said, but I tell you. The crowds have never heard a person speaking quite like this before. Who is this person? that is perceived to the heart of reality. They can speak with such force and weight and certainty. I like to think that something of that still comes upon Christian preachers today. You need to do your homework. You can't, we actually don't care about your opinion. It needs to be the word of God. But, but when the spirit of God comes upon a, a message there is often a supernatural boldness that marks it. That is the power of God to change lives. I'll tell you what else they were amazed by Jesus' wisdom. It was, it was, it was um, the sermon, it, sorry, I'm getting lost from my own notes here. Oh, no, I'm saying be amazed by Jesus himself. So I'm saying they were amazed by Jesus' authority. Secondly, they were amazed by the fact that Jesus practiced what he preached. Isn't that one of the amazing things about Jesus? He practiced what he preached. He practiced what he preached. He practiced what he preached. I mean, all that stuff about loving your enemies. I mean, wasn't he the expert of that on the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. He, was, he embodied his sermon. He embodied mercy. He embodied integrity. He embodied love. It's amazing to hear a person, you know, speaking about how life should be lived and actually living it. Christian preachers, myself certainly, we are constantly humiliated by the fact that we've got to preach above our ability to live what we preach. <laughs> you know, you're saying the word says, so he constantly... Reminded. You might even call every Christian preacher a hypocrite by the the fact that you're announcing things that you you don't live at. Jesus, however, completely free of hypocrisy. Completely free of it. He lived what he taught and he taught what he lived. And, And then the last thing that was so amazing about Jesus in this sermon 
is that, is that it's not just a call to a radical living, it's a call to faith in a radical Savior. Because here's the thing, when you read the Sermon of the Mount, you go, hang on, this is just pure like ethics. This is how you're meant to live, this is how you're meant to live, this is how you're meant to live, this is how you're meant to live. This is like a textbook, you know, on Christian spirituality and Christian ethics. That means you haven't listened carefully to the sermon. Jesus is not just calling us to radical living, he's calling us to himself in the sermon. For example, Matthew 5 verse 11, he says that there is blessing for those who are persecuted on account of me, him. Not only is he saying is there blessing if you're merciful and you're a peacemaker, he says there's blessing upon you if you, on account of your following me, are persecuted. He's putting himself right in the middle of reality. He's not just telling you how to live life, passing on the wisdom and saying, don't worry, you can, doesn't matter if you forget about me, just remember the wisdom. He's saying, you don't forget about me. He is the message. Matthew 5, verse 17, he says, I have come to fulfill the scriptures. That's weird language. Come from, from where? He's suggesting, I've come into this world with a mission from God, from heaven. And then in that same Matthew 5, he then says the whole Old Testament uh, is about me. <laughs> And he tells people to live by his commands. He says, you've heard it says, he even quotes Moses, and, and then he even, he transcends Moses. He's saying, yeah, Moses said this, but I say, he is, he's surpassing Moses. He, 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 and then he says that he will be the final judge of false prophets, and he'll decide upon the eternal destiny of people. My goodness. Last week, and, this, and today we've learned that he is the only way to live in an indestructible life, which remains standing at the great judgment. The question is, who does this Nazarene preacher think he is? C.S. Lewis, in the book Mere Christianity, written in the 50s, I think, he says, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. C.S. Lewis says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and who said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something else. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with this patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Tim Keller says this, Jesus' teaching was not the main point of his mission. He came to save people through his death for our sin and his resurrection for our life. So his important ethical teaching only makes sense when you don't separate it from these historic facts. If the resurrection of Jesus is a genuine reality, it explains why Jesus can even say that the poor and the meek who are trampled in this life will ultimately inherit the earth. He's speaking about a resurrection. The Apostle Paul says that without a real resurrection, 
following Jesus is useless. But there is a resurrection. You see, Jesus endured the worst storm. All the judgment that was meant to fall upon you for your sin fell upon him. He died. And he rose again. For he is the rock upon which we can build our lives. Can I ask us to stand up? Jeff and Ben, um, that last song you were singing about him being our foundation is based on these very verses. On purpose. Wow, okay. Well, I'm glad you did. You made that song up? Wow. Wow. How cool is that, eh? Amazing. Can you sing it again? And let's sing it together. Be amazed at Jesus. Hey, just before we sing, if there are any of you that are new to church or back in church after a long time, I'm sure you can feel God targeting you for love. I'm sure you can feel that you're not here by mistake, that you're meant to come into this kingdom, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and he rose again from the dead. And I want to encourage you, invite you, even challenge you. Today's the day you follow Jesus. Today's the day you trust in him as the Savior and the Lord. <laughs> you can do that right where you are. You just say, Jesus, I'm trusting in you. I'm coming into your kingdom. Take me into your family. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for rising again from the dead. You pray that where you are. You join us in the song as a child of God.